The first scripture is from the 31st Psalm. We'll do verse 5 and then verse 14 and 15. In verse 5 it says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, O faithful God. Then you move forward to verse 14. It says, But you are my God. I trust in you. I say to you, my times are in your hands. And then from Luke in the last day of Jesus' life, I would just remind you of the story in Luke 23. As they nailed Jesus on the cross, uh, which is a moment of unspeakable pain, surrounded by two criminals, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The soldiers will cast lots for his clothes, and then one of the two criminals next to Jesus on the cross will begin to taunt him. Finally, the other criminal says, look, we belong here, but he is innocent. And then he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then finally, about noon, it becomes dark. And then we hear the curtain torn in the temple that separated the holiest place from the rest of the temple. And then Jesus gives up his spirit and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. As a pastor, I've had occasion to be with people in the last hours or last minutes before their death, and and I've heard some pretty remarkable things. I've heard people confess in their last hours to a life that they had lived that they wished they hadn't, or a life that they uh, wished they had chosen to live and had lived differently. I've heard others make profession, and and they profess their love for people who uh, were around them. I've heard others, quite remarkably, engage in reconciliation. In one case, uh, the, the, the uh, person who was dying and their brother had been uh, estranged for more than 35 years and came back together. I've even heard that occasionally, uh, quite remarkably, someone in their last moments call out as if they could see a long-lost loved one moving toward them. As a student of history, I've also heard and read some pretty remarkable things that people have said near their death. You've heard me say before, one of the great rabbis, uh, Akiva, who lived, who died about a hundred years after Jesus, dies also at the hands of the Roman. They, they've tied him to the stake. They're basically uh, filleting. They're pulling off his skin. They've lit a fire. They're going to burn him. And his last words go something like this, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Had. Last thing he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And then one of the early leaders of the church, a man named Polycarp, is 86 years old. They bring him before the Roman officials and they tell him that he must deny Jesus, that he must recant his faith in order to live. And he says something like this, for 86 years, Jesus has not denied me. Why would I want to deny him now, and his life is taken from him. Some pretty remarkable things have been said in the last minutes and hours of a person's life, but none more remarkable than our Lord Jesus when we come to the cross here in Luke 23. 
One of the first things we hear him say about the very people who have condemned him, an innocent man, to die is this. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Later, to the criminal who says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he makes this amazing assurance. I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And finally, with his last breath, he says, into your hands. I commit my spirit. In some ways, that may seem the least remarkable because a lot of people at the very point of of death, just as there are no atheists in foxholes and people get converted while they're on death row, a lot of people in their last breath, their thoughts do turn to God. But on the other hand, you and I have both been around people and we've seen that they have a very difficult time in these last moments letting go. They hold on to life and breath as if it was all they had. And all they know and all they can trust in. But Jesus willingly lets it go. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A couple things interest me about this. The first one uh, will not surprise you. That when Jesus is saying this to God from the cross, he's just quoting scripture. Psalm 31.5 and an allusion to Psalm 31 verse 15 as well. It had become the practice of very faithful people of God in Jesus' day that their, de- their desire anyway, was hopefully would be their practice, would be their last breath they would utter scripture. So we even see it with Akiva who utters the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, as he's being killed by the Romans. So one of the things Jesus does on the cross is he doesn't make up new stuff to say. Just says this, God's word back to God. It just reminds us how significant God's word was to Jesus, that his whole life was lived in fulfillment of that word. And just causes me to wonder just how committed I am to that word, to learning it and to living it. But the other thing is is more interesting to me this morning, and that is, if you look at Jesus on the cross committing himself to God, and you look at the rest of his life leading up to the cross, there's no difference. The man who commits to God at the minute of his death is the man who has been committed to God his entire life. Dallas Willard made this observation in a book on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, when you look at Jesus, you get the sense that Jesus lived in trust and confidence and that he thought that with God, the universe was a perfectly safe place to be. Whatever would happen, he would trust. Whatever would happen, he would stay committed. That's simply how he lived his life. Well, this morning, I just want to think with you for a few moments about what do you think it will be like for us at that moment, at that time? What will it be like for me? And my feeling is that if I want to be committed to God at my death, that the point at which I need to do that is not after the prognosis, diagnosis. The point at which to do that is now. That if we want to be committed to God with our last breath, we need to commit to God with our very next breath. What Jesus did on the cross was just what he had been doing all of his life. He was doing everything God asked him to do and the way that God had asked him to do it, living a life of perfect commitment. So, I want to share with you why I think this might be a good commitment for you to make, and for me to make. 
And I take it from something some of you have heard me say before. Years ago, according to the story, there was a speaker invited to a Christian banquet in Dallas. And as so often happens in the banquet, the other parts of the program ran long. In his more than 30-minute speech, he found out he had about five minutes to deliver. So as he saw this coming on, he asked God what God wanted him to do. And what he ended up doing, according to tradition, uh, I think was quite profound. What he shared with those people in five minutes were the three reasons why he thought a commitment to God was a good commitment to make. Why he lived the way he lived in life. I want to summarize those three things for you and, and say a little bit about that. The first thing he said is, I realize that a commitment to God is, is an important commitment and the right commitment to make. Because quite frankly, God is more powerful than I am. God can do the very things I cannot do. I think you look at the scripture, that's pretty clear, isn't it? That God created the universe, apparently, with just the words out of God's mouth. Uh, that when the people were enslaved uh, to the Egyptians, uh, the Pharaoh would have been not only considered God, but con certainly the most powerful man on the planet. And God got the people out from under Pharaoh's thumb. Uh, I've never seen the pyramids in person. But it amazes me when I hear that by the time Abraham got to Egypt, he sojourned there briefly. The pyramids were already a thousand years old. This is an incredible history of technology and power that's already strong by the time that Abraham and later Joseph and later Moses get into this picture. Pharaoh has been God for a long time. And God's able to pull the slaves to freedom from away from Pharaoh. And then of course, we know as we celebrate Holy Week, that one of the things that has oppressed us longer than the Pharaoh's oppressed Egypt is death itself. And on that Easter morning, God and God's power conquers death. Basically, commitment to God's a pretty good thing to do because God is more powerful than I am, can do things I can't do. Second reason he gave is that God knows Everything. God knows more than I know. In fact, God knows me even better than I know myself. Some of you have probably been in, uh, in seminars, um, business seminars or other kinds, where they'll talk about Johari's window. Have you heard of Johari's window? It's like four-quadrant thing. And you divide your um, life into four quadrants. And one of the quadrants is things that uh, I know about me and everybody else knows about me. Then there's another uh, second quadrant, which is, Things I know about me, but others don't know about me. They can't see it. I haven't told them. Then there's a third quadrant, which is things that others know about me, but I may not know about myself. You know, maybe I've got something in my teeth and they can see it. Or worse there, they know that I have a bad habit of passive aggressiveness that hasn't come to realization. Uh, I haven't realized it yet. And then, though, Johari said there's that fourth quadrant, which are things that... I don't know about me and things they don't know about me. And I want to tell you that fourth quadrant is not hidden from God. God knows me better than I know myself, knows my situation, knows everything that is in front of me as well as everything that is behind me. Now, the speaker speaking in Dallas that evening, of course, is thinking of knowledge in sort of the Greek sense that it's kind of what you have in your head. But Hebrews also understand that when you talk about knowledge, you also talk about what is experienced. 
and what you come to know through experience. So when God says to Abraham, well, now I know that you'll do what I say, part of our response as Westerners is, well, duh, of course you know that. You're God. You can, you can see those things. But what God means is now I've experienced firsthand your faithfulness, Abraham. I've, I've, I've watched you. I've participated with you in it. And so one of the things it tells me is that God not only knows more than I know, but God's participating in everything that I'm going through. That's God's knowledge. It's just like, oh yeah, I know God, David's going through a tough time. It's like, he's there with me, that my experience is his experience. One of the great rabbis of the 20th century was a man named Abraham Joshua Heschel. He's reflecting on the travails of the Jews throughout the millennium. And he thinks about the exiles and then, of course, uh, with the Holocaust. And one of the things he says is, why do we Jews say or ask, why did this happen to us? He said, why do we not ask, why did this happen to him? And his point was that God goes through all of the sufferings of God's people. Whatever you go through, you do not go alone. God knows is another way of also saying God cares. So God's more powerful. God's more knowledgeable and caring. And then finally, God is more loving than I am. You know, there are, quite frankly, limits to my love. You know, uh, oftentimes my love is simply reciprocal. If you love me, I'll love you back, maybe. Or, or if I do love you first, it's probably because I'm hoping for something in return. And God's love is limitless. God doesn't love the way we love. Paul put it this way to the Romans. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. You know, not only can God do more than I can do, knows more than I can do, whatever God is going to know and do is going to be for the best. Because God loves me more and better than I love myself. And God loves me more and better than I love the people I claim to love. It just makes sense to put it in God's hands. Great mathematician Pascal said, Blaise Pascal a few uh, centuries ago, he said, it's just a better bet to bet on God. Let's say you bet on God and you commit your life to God, and it turns out there was no God. At worst, says Pascal, what you've lived is a life of courage, faithfulness, integrity, and compassion. And probably none of that really hurt. But let's say you bet the other way. And let's say you bet there is no God. That you commit just to yourself. And to nobody else. And you turn out to be wrong on that bet. What will you miss out? Not only in this life. But what might you miss out on in the life to come? It's just a better bet to bet on God. I know myself to be limited. And if I forget that, every once in a while I'll get a reminder this morning, I told a few people uh, before church, I was real glad because about 8 o'clock this morning, I found my wife. I lost her last night waiting in an airport in Nashville, Tennessee because of weather delays. And the last thing I got from her was at midnight, it said, my flight is canceled, my phone is running out of battery. You know, what I learned during from 3 o'clock until midnight and then on past that yesterday uh, with the weather and everything is that I don't control airlines. I don't control weather. You know, I'm really pretty limited in pulling off the things 
that I'm trying to pull off. And a lot of the time, I come to find out the very things I was trying to pull off weren't very good anyway. It's just a better bet to be in God's hands. But let me share with you this. If you've not placed your life in God's hands, there's a couple things that are helpful to do. One is just to acknowledge that, to say to God, I've tried to control the universe. I've tried to run it. I'm stopping. It's yours. I'm yours. And I think you can say that. But here's the thing that the Hebrews knew that we Greeks don't tend to know as well. That it often helps to act out a commitment. What we do as Western Christians is we say creeds. We believe this, we believe that, we believe the other. What they say is the Shema, which is, I'm going to do this. I'm going to love with everything that I am and everything that I have. There's a difference there. Because they know that what's in your head only gets cemented if you do something with your hands. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it is, as you've probably guessed, not coincidental that when we spent four weeks talking about generosity that I decided to wrap it up on Palm Sunday. Because it's a Sunday when we think about the commitment that Christ demonstrated to us. And it's an opportunity to demonstrate our commitment and to initiate it back to God. Some of you got in the mail, but apparently not everybody. Uh, a letter from me this week and an estimate of giving card. I just want to say a couple of things. One, if you didn't get one, there's probably one on the back of the pew in front of you. There's a couple of blanks to note. One is a blank about how much you're planning uh, financially to give to God through this church this year. That's helpful to the church. It's not going to affect our budget in that we've already made our plans. This isn't about a budget. Uh, but it's helpful to the church. But then there's a second line, and that's for you. That will help you where you say to God, and it's from the generosity book that we've been reading last month. You probably noticed I just ripped it off word for word. It says, God, I'm going to strive to give this much of my income this coming year. And my coaching to you is, wherever you were last year, if you feel that you want to be and are called to be more generous, try to go up a percent, if you can. It is within your possibility, uh, and see also what God does with that. Now, if you want to fill that in, only the treasurer sees that. Um, if, if, if you're not comfortable, then fill it in in your mind for yourself, because it's your point at knowing uh, where you want to go with your commitment. The baskets will be here at the close of the service for you to put the cards in. You'll recognize these as the same baskets from last week where you committed on relationships and other things that you wanted to do for God. It reminds us that it is that commitment that solidifies things that move them from our head, from intention to our heart, and they become action. While I was waiting to hear something uh, from the airport last night, I was wandering around on the TV and I came across a show on Pompeii. You know Pompeii, August 79 A.D., Mount Vesuvius erupts, and uh, people are inundated. Those who were still in town, they'd had an earthquake some months earlier that had run about half the people out of town. And the amazing thing you'll remember about Pompeii is because of the way people got caught and covered in ash, it was sort of preserved what they were doing at the time. And it was quite fascinating. People caught in the act. In that last moment. 
Um, there were people that were obviously still running. There were people curled up still hiding. There were people in a cellar with their possessions next to them. My favorite one, though painful as it was, was there's one with a mother and a small child on her lap. But it raised the question for me, in that last moment, what do I want to be found doing? How do I want to be found? And I decided, if I'm going to get covered in ash, I'd like to be found with one hand open, ready to give to God and receive from God, and one hand extended to reach out to others. That's the commitment. To love God. To love others. And I want to live it now so that when that day comes, I'll still be living it then.